Hello, and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. I'm Diane. I'm a mother of two living in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to make room in my life for what matters by getting rid of the clutter and living life with purpose. I hope you'll join me on the journey to think more and do with less. This week, I'm bringing you my interview with Danae Barahona. Danae is the host of the Simple Families podcast and is author of the new book, Simple Happy Parenting. Her refreshing approach to minimalism and parenting is professional yet warm. She believes in a holistic approach to helping the whole family, living well through cultivating a healthy relationship with yourself, family, and home. I've enjoyed listening to her podcast over the last several years, and I can't wait to talk with her today about the idea of a less is more approach when parenting. Before I get to the interview with Danae, I wanted to share a rating and review from Beth1108. She says, love this podcast. As a mom to one-year-old twins, I have found myself very overwhelmed with stuff. This podcast has motivated me to take just 10 to 15 minutes daily to bag unused or unneeded items to donate. I love how you guys talk about health, beauty, and home. Very inspiring. As always, I'm so appreciative of any feedback that I get on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast. And if you haven't left a rating and review yet, I would so appreciate you doing so. That's going to help other moms find the Minimalist Moms podcast so that this word can be spread far and wide. Again, I so appreciate anyone that's already taken the chance to do that. And if you haven't yet, I would love for you to head over to iTunes and leave a rating. Now for the interview with Danae. Hi, Danae. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Hi, Diane. I'm happy to chat with you. I've been looking forward to this. I have too. I've been listening to your podcast for several years now, so this is really exciting. I'm kind of fangirling. I'm not going to lie. Oh, thank you. Well, so am I. It's so good to talk to somebody else that's in the same genre, minimalism and parenting. Those two things blended together, I think, go very well together. So it's I'll be excited to hear your thoughts on these topics that we're covering today too. Yeah. So in getting to know you a little bit more, I'd love to know what prompted you to create the Simple Families community. So Simple Families, well, first of all, Simple wasn't really anything that was on my radar until I became a mother. Um, I have had a lifelong history of clutter. I would say that my biggest battle with my parents growing up was my messy room and the constant asking me to clean it and my constant inability to clean it. And I say my inability to clean it because reflecting back, it's not that I was being defiant and I didn't, I just wanted this messy room. I actually loved having a clean room. I just didn't know how to clean my room. And my parents would send me and they say, go clean your room. And I would go up there and I was so overwhelmed because I had so much stuff in there that I simply just didn't know what to do. And I didn't have a system. I didn't have a place to put things. It was just mass chaos. And I realized this becoming an adult that if I don't know how to clean up, then I'm certainly going to have a hard time teaching my kids how to do that once I became, once I became a parent. So I kind of stumbled into minimalism um, twofold. I started to visit when my first child was an I think he was eight weeks old. We started attending a Montessori playgroup and I was introduced to Montessori, which by the nature of it is rather minimalist. Um, and I really started to gain an appreciation for engaging with my child in a simplified space. And that was really eye-opening to me. And it felt really light 
in the start of my parenting journey. And just coincidentally around that time, I had a friend who introduced me to the concept of the of a capsule wardrobe. And I started writing about it. And I was writing at that time, I had another blog and that was more focused on my PhD research interest, which was feeding children. Um, but I was also writing on a local mom's blog and I used that local mom's blog as a place to share my experience with my, my capsule wardrobe. And the first post I wrote was why I got rid of my wardrobe and I took pictures and I documented it. And that post went beyond viral. I think it probably had like in the first week or so, probably had four or 5 million people reading it, people all over the world, tearing their closets apart. It really, it was it was just before the Marie Kondo movement. And I think um, it just kind of woke the world up to what it was like to live lighter in the closet space. And um, so I kept going and I did another post um, a month later. That was how I got rid of the toys. And that one also went viral and was picked up by the Today Show. And I realized that maybe this is what people want to hear about because what the things that I were writing, I was writing about my research, my dissertation research interest as I was finishing my PhD in child development um, was focusing on feeding children and what can we do as parents to make a difference in the way that our kids eat and really what do we do as parents that can make a difference in their lives. And I knew I didn't necessarily want to give that up, but I was becoming really passionate about minimalism and I was enjoying writing about it. And I knew I wanted to find this blend between parenting and minimalism and somehow find a way to weave in the feeding and mealtime process in there too. Um, and it was a pleasant surprise to find out to my for myself that these things are actually all very much interrelated. No, absolutely. I... Gosh, there's so many little tracks I could take with everything that you've stated. Yeah, I just said a lot. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I One, I have still yet to condense my wardrobe into a capsule, which I know Megan always used to get on me about that because it, there is so much freedom in just having fewer choices in that arena. I just feel like my body hasn't settled in the last five years. So that's why I've kind of kept back from that. But I don't know. Do you think that someone that is pregnant or in this stage could do it? Or would you su suggest women hold off? So I started when my oldest was, let's see, I really I sort of started the process when he was just a little over a year old and I knew that I wanted to have a second child. So my thought process on developing my capsule was I want to have things that will grow with me and at least get me through my first trimester and then get me through the first couple months postpartum. So knowing that, of course, I was going to have to bring in some maternity clothes too. So really, I focused on my first capsule on a lot of elastic waist skirts, elastic waist pants, elastic waist shorts, and flowy looser tops. Um, a lot of button-down tops that I could wear open with maternity tanks underneath. Um, I really found it because that was when I first started, that was my goal. Find a way to make this stuff work as much as possible um, in the early months of pregnancy and in the postpartum months. So I think there's a lot of room for a capsule wardrobe, even when you're flexing sizes. Yes, it's probably just an excuse keeping me back, but it's still something I aspire to condense in my life. It's obviously a big help when getting ready, and the more time I can save getting myself ready means the more time that I can save for helping my kiddos, which leads me to my next question, actually. You have written a new book, Simple Happy Parenting, and when I think of simple happy parenting, I think of time savers, intentionality, and ease. So why did you come up with this name, and what does simple happy parenting mean to you? 
Well, I actually didn't come up with the title for this book, Simple Happy Parenting. I didn't even like it when my publisher first proposed it to me, but it's funny. I wrote the book. So originally my publisher came, the publisher before it was my publisher came to me and asked me to write a book and they asked me to write the contents, the table of contents, which basically turned into an outline for the book. And I wrote the the table of contents and they came up with the name based on that. And I knew that it wasn't finalized. So I just kind of nodded and was like, okay, sure. We'll go with this. We'll like, we'll deal with that later sort of. And then I wrote the book. And after I wrote the book, I was just like, this, this is the right name for this book. Um, There, I think for me, someone recently asked me in the past month or two asked me how I define happiness and I, I had to pause for a minute and I don't often pause for a minute before I talk because I'm a talker. Um, and because I wasn't really sure. It's such a difficult word to define. And I thought about it. I was like, well, first of all, I need a good definition. If I'm right, if I wrote a book called Simple Happy Parenting, then I need a pretty good definition of what happy means. And my first gut instinct to reply to that question was to me, happiness feels like lightness when my shoulders feel light, when I don't have a million things spinning through my brain, when my house isn't a disaster, I feel like lightness and simplicity mean happiness to me. And to me, those two things are so simple and happy are very much interrelated. And they're almost elusive in many ways when you become a parent. Yes, happiness most definitely is an elusive concept. But I appreciate that there are individuals attempting to break the idea down so that listeners or readers have an effective, tested way to achieve it, you know? Um, That said, as mothers, we want to maintain that sense of happiness throughout our day. We don't want to spend mental energy worrying or arguing or just having an overall feeling of stress when we parent. And I wouldn't guess that the majority of us desire to be overbearing or oppressive Yet, a lot of us end up turning into quote-unquote helicopter moms without even realizing it. So, how would you say, or how would you suggest that we step away from this skittish mindset and move towards a more free, relaxed relationship with our children? Well, when we're talking about helicopter moms, one of the words that I think about is intensity and different levels of intensity. There's the super intense mom that feels like she needs to, you know, be number one, do as much as she can be the best of the best, you know, like those Mother's Day cards that say like best mom ever, like she really needs to like be that mom, the best mom ever, the perfect mom. And then there's the mom who is much less intense, has no desire to be perfect, just kind of like does what she needs to do the bare minimum. And when you compare those two moms, so I write the best mom, the perfect mom, and then the mom who just like doesn't put a ton of effort into it. You kind of, I mean, it's obvious that the best mom is like the best mom, the mom who's not doing it all just seems like she's kind of lazy and she doesn't really care about her kids as much. So I think when you think about the different intensities of parenting in that aspect, it's just natural that mothers, particularly mothers who are high achieving, educated, who've had some career success, older, tend to start their families when they're a little bit older even. These are the moms that I think fall down this rabbit hole because they've found that intensity and being the best has gotten them to, has has led to benefits and led to um, positive feelings in the past. So 
if they, as particularly mothers who've had a lot of career success before they start their families, they feel like, you know what? I worked my butt off. I did everything. I worked from sun up until sundown. Like I gave it my all. And what happened? You know, I got promotions. I started achieving. I got accolades and rewards. And they were rewarded for doing it all and being it all in a career or in another aspect of their life. And then they feel like parenting just has to be the same way, right? Like it just needs to be this intense process. And the fact of the matter is it's it's totally different. The reality is we're dealing with other human beings, other human beings who are on their own journey. And when we take over their journey and we start walking that path, instead of walking next to them on that path, really kind of walking on top of them on that path, we're really robbing them of a lot of opportunities to learn and grow and develop their own individuality. So Overachieving in motherhood, I think in many ways, takes away from our children's experience and their growth and their development. I personally struggle with being more of a helicopter mom when it comes to the hovering at the playground or the park in regards to safety, just because my little boy is much more adventurous and likes to explore way more than my daughter does. So where I can be completely comfortable with Charlotte walking away from me in a grocery store, which actually maybe I should be a little bit more worried and concerned for her in a grocery store versus the park. I feel like it's more black and white for me when it comes to helicoptering. Do you think that that's a thing that we can be more gray and that we can think about safety, but also allow a less is more approach? You know, I think that all parents are going to be protective of our kids' safety. And I find that it's, especially in this day and age, it's really hard not to hover over our kids in public settings. Like, for example, I we, my, was with my kids yesterday. We went to see, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Story Pirates. It's a kid's podcast. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. So they did a live performance and we bought tickets and it was at this small theater close to our house. And we went yesterday and... I took my daughter to the bathroom to the bathroom in the middle of the show. She's three and she is slightly slash very unpredictable. Um, so we're in the bathroom and the stall, it was a really old theater. The stalls were particular the doors were particularly low. There was probably maybe, maybe eight to twelve inches of clearance underneath mm-hmm. this the stall. So she's standing waiting. I'm going to the bathroom. I'm literally on the toilet. And she she crawls underneath the stall and runs, like makes a mad dash. I can hear her feet. So I am like pulling my pants up as fast as I can. I didn't even wash my hands. I shouldn't probably be saying all this in public. Um, But like, I am like out the door she's gone and the theater is dark. And I am just like, oh, S-H-I-T, like she's gone. And the thing was, when she was running out, I heard another woman, another mom running in and being like, oh, are you going to wait for your mom? And she just let her go. Mm. And I just kind of feel like I wanted to be like, lady, like you see this small child running off by herself. There's no other adult visible because I was still in the stall. Like you grab her hand and you just stop her and hold her until someone else can, can come along. And then, so I get out. So I heard the mom say this as I'm like trying to get out of the stall I run out, I go out, she's gone. She's run down into the theater, into the dark theater. There's a woman who works at the works at the theater who is like, oh, are you looking for the little girl? She went that way. I'm like, can somebody stop her, right? <laughs> and so to me, I'm just kind of, I feel like if I, I feel like if people in our community could feel more comfortable with stepping in and being supportive, that I 
I wouldn't have to hover as much, right? But knowing that all these people are just going to let her run right by us, right by them and not stop her. Um, I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? Like, I just no, feel like does. there were two other adults that could have grabbed her hand and stopped and just waited and waited for a parent to come, but they didn't. And I just feel like in the future, like I'm going to have to pee holding her hand mm-hmm. so that I know she can't climb up from under the stall. And it feels a little bit tragic to me that as other fellow moms that we don't feel comfortable doing that, right? We don't feel comfortable stopping another child because, you know, you never know how the other parent's going to react. Are they going to say like, oh, don't touch my child or what it would be. But like sort of like in this dream world, like I would feel the support of other other parents or other adults who know when I'm in need, you know, even if they don't know me. But that's just that's not the world that we're living in right now. No, and it does seem to have taken a shift at some point. Pardon me if I romanticize the mid-1900s, but it seems as though people used to have more of a sense of community in regards to parenting children. And now it seems as though we're afraid to cross lines with one another, and I'm not quite sure how those lines got there. Who was the first person to really implement or establish those boundary lines that we don't cross. And of course, I would never suggest strong discipline with someone else's child, but I think a good reprimand or just taking control as the adult is something that we're really missing these days. Right. And this reminds me, several years ago, before I became a mom, I lived in Chicago and I was walking my dog one day and there were two little boys, brothers. They were probably like nine and 10 years old and they were riding their bikes down the sidewalk while I was walking my dog. And I saw one of the little boys, he was riding his bike and it looked like from watching him, it looked like he was having a seizure and he fell off his bike and he stood up pretty quickly afterwards and he seemed fine, like not of the extent where I needed to call an ambulance or anything. Like he stood up and came to and he seemed okay, but to the degree where I didn't feel comfortable walking away and like letting him back, get back on his bike and ride home. He lived like a mile away. So I was like, well, what do I do? So I got out my phone and we tried to call his parents. His parents were not home. They weren't answering. So I put those kids in their bikes in my car and I drove, drove them home. And the at that time, like I wasn't a mom, so I didn't really understand sort of the repercussions of this. But afterwards, I kind of was like, well, was that okay? Like I just took some kids. Like if somebody else just like threw my kids in their car, like, what would I do? How would I feel about that? But I mean, that was sort of my gut feeling was like, I can't leave these kids out here on the side of the road. Like I need to take them home. I need to make sure that they get home safely. But you have to ask yourself questions because like I could have gotten arrested for that. You know, Mm -hmm. eventually end of story, the mom ended up seeing my missed call, calling me back and being very thankful. Mm -hmm. So I like feel like I dodged a bullet on this one in that I, you know, she could have call the police and be like, this woman like put her kids in my car and like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you just, you have no idea. And I think because of that, we don't know the reaction of others. It's really hard to be able to rely on a community, um, the people in our community to support us in ways that sometimes we need to. So I think that we feel like we, when it comes to safety, we feel like we have to take it all on our shoulders. Hmm. I think somewhat along these lines, as we take a look back at history and somewhat of the detachment parenting that people once had, it seems now we are more involved in our kids' life more than ever. 
However, it also seems to be shifting to this reemergence of the less is more mentality. So would you say that this is just a trendy reemergence of parenting or do you think it's actually going to catch on? I realize I've asked a lot of my guests this question as of lately, but I'm really curious to know your thoughts. You know, I think that we are both emerged in communities that are not representative of the whole necessarily. I think that when you surround yourself with minimalism and simplicity and people, other people who are invested on that journey, it seems like it is more of a trend than it is. Um, I know that I follow a ton of Facebook pages that focus on intentional living and minimalism. And it feels like when I get on Facebook and I visit my social world, it feels like everybody's doing it. But the reality is like, that's just who I have surrounded myself with in many cases. I mean, I definitely have a lot of people in my community that are not on those bandwagons by any means. Um, So I do think in some ways that this is the law of attraction that we see this, that it feels like it's catching on. Um, I mean, I do think that we're seeing a little bit more of it. There's definitely some more mainstream media articles about free range parenting and, um, and about minimalism and simple living, but I think we have a long way to go on this process. Um, I think, especially I live in Westchester County, which is the northern suburbs outside of New York City, and there's a lot of intense parenting here. Um, and I recently, I follow a lot of the local parent groups just kind of lurking and observing and listening to the conversation. And a couple of months ago, I observed a mom who was talking about, um, oh, well, another mom asked, what can I do to help support my kids throughout high school so that they're as best prepared for college as possible. And her kids were like junior high age, I think. And another mom responded, just never take your foot off the gas pedal. (laughs) And I was just like, well, this is why I can't get involved in these forums, right? Because (laughs) I don't see any good coming and inserting my opinion when the masses are, um, are so passionate, like never take your foot off the gas pedal. That statement just like, it just really sits with me in the sense that there are a lot of parents out there who feel like it is their responsibility to drive the success of their children and drive the well-being and happiness of their children. But the harsh reality is that we don't have control over that stuff, right? Like we cannot give our children happiness. They have to go out and find happiness for themselves. We can prepare them with some good underlying tools and we can give them a happy home and being happy ourselves. That's really our best approach at providing a happy home for our kids is being happy ourselves as parents. Um, but we can't we can't pass that on to them. We can't just hand it off and be like, here's happiness, take it. Here's success, take it. They can take the tools and then they have to do what they will with it. And I really think the more that we do when we are parenting very intensely and we're doing too much, we are robbing our kids of opportunities to learn how to do those things themselves and to make decisions for themselves. And that's not something that starts when they're like 14 or 16. Like they start that from the very beginning of life, that small bits of autonomy that we're giving them little by little as they grow. It's not something that sets on suddenly. And I think we have to be aware that we have to find opportunities for that from the very beginning. I think some people would argue, isn't it our job to protect our children from any difficulties that are in our control? But I think you're right. I think that we take away some of these growth opportunities away from our children when they have these moments and we are too quick to step in or we think that we can control it. 
Right. And there's just some things that are out of our control, like the nose picking thing, right? We're like knee deep in nose picking at our house being the allergy season. (laughs) And I had someone recently asked me about a question, something along the lines of this. And I was like, this, you know, how we're dealing with it is at home, you can pick your nose because at home people do things that they're more comfortable with, right? Like I bet there's a lot of adults picking their noses at home, but you're not doing it in public because you know, it's socially not appropriate. The problem is that our kids haven't quite come to understand that distinction between it's okay to pick your nose at home, sort of, I guess it's like not the cleanest, most desirable thing, but like we do things at home that we don't do in public. They're two different um, venues for these behaviors and our kids haven't quite started to distinguish that yet. And when we tell them like, quit picking your nose, they don't respond in the same way as if they were five or six years old and they were at school and their friend said, ew, that's so gross. Stop picking your nose. Yuck. That's going to be far more impactful than a parent at home saying, stop picking your nose, stop picking your nose, stop picking your nose Mm -hmm. (laughs) a billion times, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to hear that because we don't have that same type of impact because of their level of comfort at home and their level of comfort with us. Um, as they would as if a peer was to correct them. So there's some behaviors like that, that we can nag the heck out of our kids, but at the same time, we can't make the same difference as a peer would. Now, in a perfect world, like I don't ever want my kids to be embarrassed. Like I don't want them to have to be corrected by another kid and like say, like I just want to teach them to stop picking their nose so they don't go out into the world and have some other like snotty little five-year-old tell them to stop picking their nose and how gross they are because that's humiliating. Mm -hmm. So I want to prevent all that. But the truth is like, I can't, like, I don't have the power to prevent all of that. Like I can't take away all of the opportunities for embarrassment and all of the opportunities for failure. And some of that's going to happen naturally throughout life and throughout socialization. And our kids are incredibly resilient and they are going to bear through and make it even when other kids are telling them that they're gross because they're picking their nose. Yes. My husband and I have actually been talking about this recently, the difference between natural consequences out in the world versus consequences that we give at home. And if my daughter is picking her nose in public, she may have a stronger reaction to being told that than what my consequence would be at home. I don't really know where I'm going with that other than to say that there is a difference between those consequences. And I think it's healthy for our kids to experience natural consequences and not always protect them from that, even though our hearts ache for them when they do experience that embarrassment or whatever negative experience they're going through, we need to allow them to feel that. So kind of shifting to a more practical level, I want to get your opinion on various areas of parenting and how we can approach parenting with that less is more mentality. So your answers don't have to be super detailed, um, just some more of your best tips that we can apply in these areas. So for the first one, what would be your best tip in regards to the less is more approach to free play? So free play at home truly should be free play. You should be free to let your kids play without you. If you choose, you should let them engage in the type of activities that they choose to. I really don't exert much control at all unless my kids are hurting each other. Um, But the words that they're using in the play that they're engaging in, I try to let it just, um, no pun intended, play out. 
And I find that sometimes it's easier if I remove myself from the room. They're three and five now, so they're safe most of the time when they're playing on their own. But if I walk away, they're actually, and I don't have to listen and watch the every move, they start to work through their problems together and work through their conflicts together. So um, letting them letting them be and letting them play and not feeling the pressure to to take on that role as playmate all the time. Yes, I feel as though a lot of moms feel pressure to take on that role as playmate, but really we're doing our kids a disservice if we're always being their playmate because there's so much that they can learn independently Okay, the next one is, what does a less is more approach look like in regards to food and mealtimes? So I, as I had mentioned that um, feeding children uh, and the impact of the parent approach on feeding children was my dissertation research when I was finishing my doctorate in child development. And I didn't think that it really related to minimalism. So I thought I was going to have to stop talking about it when I wanted to start blogging more about minimalism. But the truth is I found that the two are completely compatible because a lot of times we're doing too much when we're feeding our kids and that ends up being the problem. The I think that one of the core mentalities that we have as intentional parents is that we're supposed to give our kids choices and we're supposed to give them options and opinions. So when it comes to food, naturally we think like, well, how do you give your kids choices when it comes to food? Well, you let them pick the food and then you let them pick the food and then all of a sudden they're just eating mac and cheese and peanut butter and jelly on rotation. So knowing that we have to give them choices, but at the same time, we have to have a lot of boundaries in place. And in my book, I talk about a few of the boundaries that we put in place in our home. And a couple of those are limiting snack intakes. So for us, snack is truly snack. The quantity is limited. So you can have a snack, but you're just getting a little bit because it's not meant to fill you up. It's just meant to get you, hold you over until the next meal. So snacks are limited, but mealtime quantities are not limited. So you can eat as much as you want at mealtimes, but snacks are going to be smaller quantities because hunger is actually a really important thing. Um, Now, nobody likes a hangry kid. I for sure don't because my oldest gets like really, really hangry and it's terrifying. Um, So I know what that feels like. So it's scary, but I also know that we do need, they need to come to the table a little bit hungry in order to eat more variety, in order to eat well at mealtimes. That's a great point. It actually repeats the idea that I read in Bringing Up Bebe. It's a French parenting philosophy book I read a few years back, but it basically suggests that American moms are so quick to give kids snacks these days in any moment of transition or in the morning and afternoon, which ends up taking away that hunger that they need to feel so that they actually eat more at their designated mealtimes. Right. And sometimes we use snacks to keep kids quiet. Um, and we use snacks because we're afraid that they're going to, they're going to cry or whatever it is. Um, but it's, it's one of it, again, it's this less is more approach to parenting when we don't provide a snack, when they are bored, which sometimes we have a tendency to do, right. We're at the grocery store. We don't want them to, they, we don't want them crying or making a fuss or grabbing things off the shelves. So we feed them a bunch of snacks. Um, when we're feeding snacks, which I kind of equate that to emotional eating, right? When we're just like feeding them to quiet them down, even though they're not hungry, um, we're doing too much, right? It's okay to be a little bit bored. It's okay just to exist and be and sit in the cart or walk next to mom and dad when you're in the grocery store. You don't have to supply a snack. You don't have to supply a toy or an activity every moment of the day when your child is unoccupied. 
I completely agree. And actually, something that's been helpful for me when I'm grocery shopping is if Charlotte sees something that she wants and we're getting close to lunchtime, I may end up purchasing it and allowing her to have a little bit of that with her lunch in addition to her lunch, but not in the grocery store to give her that instant gratification that she's looking for or the emotional element that she needs at that moment. I'm not sure. Do you think that that's the wrong thing to do? No, I think that's fine. I think just it's it practices the delayed gratification that kids so desperately need to practice. They don't get enough of. And I think that it allows them to have something to look forward to after you're done. I'm like naturally, if you're going to the grocery store before lunch, you're going to have lunch afterwards. So it's not a bribe because naturally you're going to eat anyways. So I think whenever we can use those naturally occurring rewards, like, oh, you want this? Okay, well, let's do the grocery store. When we're done here, you can have it. I think that naturally occurring rewards like that are really powerful and they are not not negative or they don't hinder our children in any way. Okay, great. Well, that makes me feel good. So the next one, how would you say less is more when it comes to manners? Ooh, manners. So I don't demand on manners from my kids most of the time. So like when it comes to sitting at the dinner table, I don't demand that they stay at the dinner table until everyone is done eating. And the reason for that is, I don't want to have a miserable dinnertime experience. We know that kids eat better when they are happier at the meal to, at the table. And that doesn't mean bribing them with an iPad to stay at the table. Um, but the problem is that kids aren't super conversational in the early years and they have a hard time staying engaged in the conversation at the table. And for my own kids, I know that I want the table to be a place that they love. So I want them to come to that in their own time. And that means they can't stay and engage in conversation for 20 minutes. So they're going to stay for a few minutes, engage a little bit, eat. And when they're done, they're going to leave. Um, now, some people would say that's super rude for kids not to stay and eat at the and stay at the table as long as everybody else is at the table. But honestly, it's something that works for our family. And I look forward to the day that my kids want to stay at the table longer because the table has become a place that they enjoy the conversation and they enjoy being. Um, for when it comes to manners, I feel like I will often, my, the way that I go about getting please and thank yous out of my kids is I just ask them to rephrase the things that they're saying often. So if they come to me like, you know, like, give me a snack or give me this toy, like, they're like, oh, excuse me, try that again. And then they'll say it again with the, with a please or with a thank you or in a different tone of voice that is slightly more pleasant, but they're never penalized for not having manners, but instead they're given the invitation and the opportunity to try again and to use the manners in a better way. Yes. An invitation to rephrase your question. That's the same thing that I try to do with my kiddos. And I think it works most of the time. All right, for the next area, how would you say less is more when it comes to the playground? So I try to step back as much as possible on the playground, depending on the developmental stage of my kids. So I, my oldest is a very cautious and he doesn't take risks on the playground. So I, it's funny that when he, he was my first, I almost had the the opposite experience and I felt like I, I needed to push him like, oh, go down the slide. Come on. You're not going down the slide. You should go down the slide. You need to go down the big slide. Um, so I felt like I was hovering because he wasn't taking enough risks. And then I had my daughter and she's like, you know, she's the kid who is like sprinting away from me at the theater. Um, and she's taking too many risks. So I have found that I have to step back from both of them, regardless of what their 
um, what their approach to the playground is. But I try to be present and to be watchful, but not being, I don't overly engage, right? I don't turn into this like perpetual play partner for my kids at the playground. I try to be able to sit back. And now that my daughter's three, she is really, really good at managing her own risks. So if you just watch her, you're going to be super nervous. But when I watch her, I'm not really because I know what she's capable of. Um, and I, I find that that is, that's kind of a balance to strike there too, is knowing that I know what she's capable of on the playground and she can handle pretty much anything, but other people see her and they're like, oh my gosh, this tiny little girl is like going down the fire pole and it makes other people nervous. So I have to check myself and make sure that I'm not overreacting based on the perception of other people. I more often than I would like to find myself on edge with my almost two-year-old at the park, but I think you're right as they get older and we see what they're capable of, it allows me to just relax a little bit more and not hover or to be right there. Right. And it does change a lot as they get older. And I know one of the things we went through a stage where my daughter was hitting right in that sort of 18 to 24 month old window where kids aren't really yet able to communicate and learn. They're still very primitive in their socialization. It's really common for kids to go through this if anyone listening has a kid going through this. But she would sort of like scratch at or push other kids very experimentally, not in an aggressive way, but to get their attention and to try to engage them when she hadn't quite figured out the social appropriate way to do it yet. And during that period of time, I felt that was like my most trying period of time, I feel like, because I really had to hover over her for the protection of other kids. I mean, not like she was like really hurting other kids, but like you can't just let your kid like run around like smacking kids and pushing kids and like scratching them on the playground, even if they're little, like you still need to think about the well-being of other people. So that period of time was more difficult because I did have to hover for the safety of others, especially, but she moved through that pretty quickly as her language developed and it's gotten, and that's not something I have to worry about anymore, thankfully. No, that makes sense. I actually felt that way this past Saturday when my cousin and I took our children to the park. Our kids will oftentimes just want to play with one another because they see each other so regularly. So if another child tries to join in, they're not bullies, but they're a little rude. And I never know how to really navigate that with other kids because I think that they should be allowed to just play with themselves, but I also don't want to hurt the feelings of another kiddo. So how would you say that we would step in there? What does a less is more approach look like in this kind of situation? So now in this situation, I wouldn't necessarily go with this approach, but I think this is important to keep in mind that the way that our kids communicate with one another is not going to sound politically correct. It's not going to sound kind and generous and loving and warm all the time. And it's because they're primitive. They have primitive socialization skills. They haven't practiced this enough. They're still learning. Um, But the reality is the kids saying those things and the kids hearing those things are generally accepting of that because that's just, it's just a little bit rough around the edges at this age. So we can't expect that they're going to say, oh, sorry, I'd rather you not play with us right now. Maybe you can play with us later. Or why don't you go over and play on the swings while we play on the slide? Like they just aren't, they don't have that capacity, nor do they have that motivation to communicate in those ways. So it's going to look rough 
when they're communicating. And and the reality is that we have to be aware of that to some extent, right? It's not going to look the way that we would be talking to another adult. Um, but I do think that there are things that we can do to encourage our kids to be inclusive. And in this situation, like when you're pushing other kids out, we can always remind, like, it's, it's nice to include other people. Like maybe you could find an activity to work towards together. And I think advocating for our kids in that sense is helpful. Um, if you have a kid that's a much younger age and the older kids don't want to wait up for the younger kid, or something that I think makes a little bit more sense to you, right? Like if you have like three five-year-olds and then a two-year-old who wants to tag along, it makes sense that they're excluding the two-year-old because the two-year-old can't keep up and it's kind of slowing them down. In that situation, I would occupy the two-year-old with something else or redirect the two-year-old. Now, if you have three five-year-olds and another five-year-old that they're just excluding just for the mere fact of excluding, that's when I think I'd have more of a conversation about kindness and about including others. It makes sense. And my cousin and I actually allow our kids to figure out disputes whenever they have one. And I will sometimes feel like other moms are critiquing us for not stepping in or butting in, but our kids have the ability to, for the most part, work it out. And we want them to develop those skills. Right. And a lot of times intentional parenting looks like lazy parenting if you're not familiar with it. Um, it looks like you're not doing anything. And if you are an intense parent, then you're doing something in those situations. So they feel like you might be being lazy. And that's something that as a parent, I know that I've just kind of had to embrace. And I know in my heart that I'm doing the right thing for my kids and that when I'm not doing something, I'm not doing it on purpose. It's not because I'm lazy. It's not because I'm distracted. It's not because I'm aloof. It's because I actually think it's better for my kids for me not to do those things. I certainly agree with that. All right, now for the last one, what does a less is more approach look like to the outdoors? So it's more important than anyone knows. And I think that, I mean, all the research on elder play is really kind of just coming out in the past decade or so. Um, Because I think when you think about how research goes down, well, generally the research is driven by the money because it's expensive to do research. So it has to be arenas that are financially making money for someone. So like breastfeeding versus bottle feeding, right? There's a lot of money put into that through the formula companies because they want to know if in fact formula feeding is just as good. So, but the research on things like outdoor play, like who's paying for that research, right? Like the woods, like there's not a lot of money and not a lot of resources going towards nature education, not compared to the money that big corporations are putting behind other areas of research when it comes to child development. So I don't think we have as much, but we're getting more and more for sure. And we know that this is becoming necessary to even do this research at all because kids are not doing it enough. 50 years ago, there was no need to research this because every kid was getting outside all the time and it was just not even a question. But now that that's not happening, we're seeing the repercussions of this and we're seeing that this is really like humans were designed to live outside and to be outside. So when we're raising kids in these temperature controlled climates, right? Like it's 72 degrees, there's no wind, there's no variation in temperature, there's not a lot of variation in um, noise level or brightness level. Like they just become accustomed to that one type of sensation all the time and they don't have much variation and they don't have the variation sensations that you get when you're outside and you feel the wind and you feel the cold and you feel the heat and you sweat 
and you see the bright lights and you hear the the noises of the wind. Like you don't get any of that when you're inside. And what we're seeing is that it it's definitely impacting the way that our kids are developing and it's impacting the way that they're moving and that they're not able to move indoors in the way that they do outdoors. So I think from a body perspective, from a brain perspective, from a child development perspective, we know that the outdoors is incredibly important from kids from the moment that they're born, not necessarily when they are, when they turn five or six or any certain age. Yes. The importance of being outside cannot be stressed enough. And I'm definitely an advocate of getting our kids out every day if possible. I know it's not always possible, but I try to at least every day for a little bit of time. So now we can transition a little bit into the last two questions I've started to ask my guests. And the first one is, what is something that you're simplifying right now, aka what is your minimalist moment of the week? So something I have just recently simplified, I guess I wouldn't say right now because I'm pretty much, I pretty much just wrapped it up is simplifying my bag that I carry with me um, because it's just been a disaster. I'm the type of person that just throws everything in, like the receipts, the broken leaky pens, everything goes right into my bag. Um, So I finally just got a very, very mild organization system in place in my bag. And I say very, very mild because I can't keep up with anything complex. So like I have like one bag, like I'm using reusable plastic bags. They're sort of like a, I don't know what the material is, but um, it's a washable material. So I'm using one of those for garbage. And I actually have a garbage bag in my purse. Um, And then I have a pen bag in my purse because those were the two things that I felt like were making the biggest mess, right? I was getting pen marks all over the inside of my purses. I was getting crumbs everywhere, receipts everywhere. So I now have a garbage bag and I now have a pen bag and kind of has changed my life. Um, so that has felt like a huge accomplishment now. I'd say the benefit of having an organized purse or a diaper bag cannot be stressed enough. So that's something great to simplify. So the second question I wanted to ask is what is something you can't stop talking about or what is your resource of the week for us? Um, so what I can't stop talking about right now is my book because it is coming out on June 4th and I'm really, really excited about it. And I'm also a little bit scared and nervous. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm talking about now. And I'm hoping that it can be a resource to so many families. I think a lot of my listeners are going to find that they can't stop talking about your book as well because it's absolutely stunning and the photography is incredible and it's just really approachable and a great book for anyone looking to simplify. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. So where can listeners find you if they want to connect with you online? Yeah, you can go to simplefamilies.com and that's where you can find links to the podcast and the blog. And then on Instagram is another good place to stay in touch. I do a lot on Instagram. Um, I engage a lot with my audience in stories, um, show kind of a glimpse into our day and into our life. Um, And I'm at Simple Families on Instagram and I'm on Facebook too, but I wouldn't say that I spend as much time there as I do on Instagram. So Great. Well, I hope that listeners grab a hold of your new book and head on over to your Instagram account to follow up with you. Thanks again for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much again to Danae for coming on the Minimalist Moms podcast today. And I hope that you all go out and pre-order her book that comes out on June 4th. And if you're listening to this after June 4th, head over to Amazon or wherever you can buy books and grab it. I invite you to keep the conversation going by visiting minimalistmomspodcast.com. There you'll find links to the Facebook page, Instagram account, and where you can find me all around the web. Thank you for joining up on this journey. I wish you a lovely week as you think more and do with less.